welcome to the Palia podcast. I'm Turi Monte. Where do your opinions come from? Why do we think what we think and why do we disagree? In each episode, we'll talk with thought leaders from around the world to help us understand the nature of opinion, how ideas form, why we argue, and what that means for society. Join us at palia.com, the encyclopedia of opinion. Today, we're super excited to be talking to Eve Perlman. Eve is a journalist of longstanding in the Bay Area of, uh, of the US, and in 2016, launched Spaceship Media, a project to try and bridge the divide that she saw emerging across the US between various different political tribes. Eve, we're thrilled to have you with us. Thanks so much for joining the podcast. So happy to be here today. Thank you for having me. Great to talk. Eve, can you give me a little bit of a history of what Spaceship Media is and why you founded it? Good place to start. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Spaceship Media was launched um, in the run-up to the 2016 election in the United States. Um, and it really, it's the result of looking at the increasing nastiness and vitriol and divisiveness in um, both on in our public spaces, both online and off, and just you know we watched the Black Lives Matter debate, the some debate, the discussions around vaccines, discussions around the national election, and it just it felt you know I've been a journalist my whole career, I've moderated online discussions and been a part of providing information for them, but it really had a different look and feel. And so we we hatched this method, what we call dialogue journalism, of going to places of controversy, of places of rancor and dissension. Um, but then once there, we wanted to do something different, right? Instead of writing a story that, that quoted a really deeply partisan voice on one side and a deeply partisan voice on the other, um, we wanted to create space for dialogue and conversation um, from a range of voices with a range of perspectives over a period of time. Um, with a real effort to um, invite genuine conversation, genuine dialogue, uh, support support those conversations with reporting. So we wanted to really break that 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 those hard divides, all the the ugliness that we that we see in, uh, globally, right, and and, nas- and nationally as well around so many issues. And so it's this very intentional process. Um, of convening conversations, supporting it with reporting, and telling stories about those conversations. And we've, in the, in the gosh, almost four years since, we've done conversations about gun control and immigration and race, all these, these issues that are, are deeply divisive um, in the U.S. and beyond. That's, Eve, I suppose my, my first question is, are, are we more polarized than we have been in the past? Or is it just, is just a feeling that I wander around with? I mean, are we more polarized? Is there ways of measuring polarization? Um, Well, yeah. I mean, I think that there's lots of people looking, researchers, this is looking at it um, in lots of different ways. But, um, and and I look at it it, it through the, I see the polarization through a sort of the point of view of a journalist looking at um, 
the space that so many publications used to hold for communities as um, supporter of supporters of dialogue, as supporters of vetted information, as supporters of kind of uh, holding a community together. And what I mean by that is if you look um, at, I live in a town called Alameda in the San Francisco Bay Area. It's a town of 70,000. There used to be a newsroom here. There were two papers, but the bigger paper had, at its heyday, had nine full-time reporters. They covered everything from city hall to, to, to school board to, you know, features to sports. And so there was a robust um, location for holding that community. And there was also a robust location for the exchange of ideas, letters to the editor, opinion pieces, editorials, right? And so we, when I look at this polarization, I look at it through a journalistic lens and the places that people came together uh, in a community tended to be, have moderating sources working on them. Um, one is location because people were close to each other. Two is because the, the, the information that was held was carefully vetted and, and that was front and center, right? And then you saw this begin to decline when angry comments threaded back on a news article held as much primacy you know, as the reporter who had spent a week writing a story. And so I tie the rise in, in dismissiveness, ugliness, um, uh, uh, sort of drift from fact, from factualness to decline of, of in news media in, in one, in, as a primary driver. So, and then you have, of course, the changing digital landscape where we have um, fake profiles online, fake people, and also really strategic and calculated efforts to stir con controversy and dissension through misinformation. So I guess that's a roundabout way to say, yes, I think there is more polarization. Um, and I think it's very hard to track though. Um, and I haven't seen any studies lately about like what your average yeah, I don't. I, but yes, there is a rise. Let's leave it there. No, no, I can. I, I hear you. But the, the, the what what I'm so interested in is your approach to this is is really across media. So these two key things that you flag, or maybe three. One, um, the absence of a community space for people to disagree at a local level. Um, uh -huh. Two, the this kind of dwindling of factfulness, the kind of the, the absence of facts, absence of hard reporting and everything else, which therefore, that, what does it do? It sort of, it renders reality sort of more nebulous. It makes it more debatable, I suppose, on some level. And then the third piece is this sort of deliberate, or not even deliberate, this slash miss information, which we're seeing sort of weaponized across social media. Can I start with the first point, which is this, the, commu the community piece? Because I'm interested in it, um, I, 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 polarization I, seems to me to emerge um, when there isn't a sort of a there's no there's no joint project. And I think what you're describing yeah. here is a sort of a joint project for the local newspaper where people come together and say, "Do we want the road left? Do we want the road right? Is that what it is? Is it about consensus about what the ultimate goals are?" I don't. Well, I, I think if I understand your question, I don't think it's about coming to consensus. I think it's it, it's look, we we one of the things we do in our work is we do what we talk. What you just flagged is your point as point number one, which is the absence of community space. Right? There's there's a, a decline in spaces, either digital or in in person, where people can come together and recognize that that we are in this together and that democracy depends on us being able to talk through our real and valid differences. Um, 
about policy, about procedure, about ideology, about values, right? There, we don't have those, we have very many fewer of those spaces now. And we've also gotten out of the habit in a large, large number of communicating respectfully and civilly. Um, and so we, we don't think about consensus in our work. We do think about, except for on the most deepest sense, which is, which is incredibly important now in, in, in this, in, as we look at, as we face down COVID, like our, our rec- that recognition that our, our fates are intertwined. What I do, who I touch, who I talk to deeply impacts the rest of my community. And so we, we, we pin our conversations around this idea that we're all in this together, that in this, around this issue, we all care about it around, we're playing with some local news conversations now around this community. We all care about the state of this community. So, uh, you know, we, that recognition that we are not adversaries, like if I support the second amendment and I believe that I should have a right to carry all sorts of weapons and, um, and I, and then somebody else is, you know, a very, uh, outspoken gun control advocate, we we can recognize that we all don't want unwanted get a gun deaths, right? And we can come together around that value and then talk from there. So uh, yeah. again, I don't know if that answers your question, but you know, we do really think about creating space for dialogue that is nuanced, that is reflective, that is that has some guardrails in terms of how we how we're expected to address each, you know, one another. That that completely answers my question. And yes, I think the consensus that I was describing was a sort of the ultimate consensus. So yeah. um, we believe in democracy. We believe that unnecessary gun deaths are not a good thing. We are we all want the best for our local town, etc. That that right. kind of fundamental. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, on onto facts, which is a huge a huge piece here. How has the demise of the local newspaper um, or yeah. The, um, the relativism that many of us, unfortunately, now um, now bring to our approach to the news. How has that changed polarization? Yeah, it's tough going. You know, I spend I spend a lot of time uh, consuming news, right, in in all all forms and. I'm highly educated. I'm a, I've made a lot of news. My, you know, I've reported a lot of news myself. And it is a, it is a. If you're living in in a social media, um, in land, if you're on Twitter, if you're on Facebook, if you're on Instagram, if you're you, it is there is a barrage of misinformation and distorted information and, um, and really difficult to parse. You know, where, what is this source? Who who is writing this? What is what is what is the goal of this? Um, and so, one of the things we we think a lot about at Spaceship is is building relationships before we ask people to trust our facts. Um, and and I think that you know that's that to ties to your question about local news. When people knew reporters, when people could call a reporter, when people could ask a reporter to cover something, when people could say to a reporter. Hey, I read your story about the school tax, and I think that you got this wrong. And the reporter could say, "Thank you. I misinterpreted that. I will fix it." That is, that's a relationship that that builds trust. And so, when that same reporter says, "This is happening um, with the firefighters right now," there's the the citizen can can believe has a much is, is predisposed to believe that reporter because that reporter has shown up that reporter is real that reporter is not an abstract person and so with the 
with the decline in local news for a whole variety of reasons, most Americans, and, and I'm gathering people around the world, I haven't looked at the numbers, don't know a reporter. So that they've, they, there is no relationship. It's just a, it's just part of the barrage of web page yeah. and tweet that people are exposed to. And so, um, you know, it's, it's interesting how we, and I think that's part of the sort of this trouble that journalism is having right now. Like reporters are screaming, trust me, I'm a, I'm a reporter. And people are so confused and so overwhelmed and so suspicious that, you know, partly because that suspicion is being fed, but also because they, it isn't real. Like you don't trust someone just because they tell you to, right. You, you earn that trust. And so um, we're really, we're, we're struggling as a, as a, as a as humanity to kind of ground ourselves in in certain objective realities and i think there's some other issues with how we we've, we've tended to report and how that undermine that too you know if you look at climate change the wildly vast majority of of experts um understand that climate change is real but because of how sort of some of the ethics and practices of traditional journalism have worked there's this um inclination or habit of quoting both sides and I'm putting that in quotation marks, even though there really aren't both sides. And you're seeing that a little bit now with how the U S media is covering Trump. Like he's, he's lying. And yet we have many journalists have this urge to, to quote those lies and frame them in opposition to a truth, even though we know that, for example, we don't have enough tests in this country or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, no, no. So it's truth is slippery right now, but it it does does exist. <laughs> yes. Um. And um. But what you're describing is a sort of um. A slippery slope where the trustfulness of news, um, and the concerns around trustfulness of news ends up sort of bleeding into a trustfulness of facts themselves. We've all gone postmodern here. We've all um, yeah. We're all, we're all relativizing furiously. Um, one of the things which struck me, um, because it's not about facts, it's about framing, is there is um, one of the leaders of the English Defence League, which is a far right group here in the UK, a man called Stephen Yaxley Lennon, who calls himself Tommy Robinson. Um, and you look at his Twitter feed, and the vast majority of his Twitter feed is Asian men doing terrible things, grooming young people in awful ways etc none of the none of the things that he's reporting is untrue they're just monstrously unfair in the framing and i think maybe yeah. that's the people media media organizations are finding so difficult is you know a, a lie is a lie you can attack that it's just the framing is a lot lot harder um how are you well, working yeah there's sorry well go ahead no no go ahead no no go you go Oh, I was just thinking, you know, I've been thinking a lot about how when we used to have a homepage, right, uh, people who spent a lot of time looking at news and information made decisions about where that a story should sit. Is this a headline? Is this a is this the front page headline or is this a, a little blurb on page 11? And and the way we consume news now is very often through a Facebook feed or through a Twitter feed or and so we, everything is given the same level of, of primacy. So we don't have any of that contextualizing or framing. And the, you know, the other thing that I always think about is, I don't know if you're familiar with George Lakoff, who, who talks a lot about once you say, he wrote a book called Don't Think of an Elephant. And his point that he makes over and over again in lots of different ways is once you have the lie, once you say the don't think of an elephant, you think of the elephant. So even if the elephant 
is a lie, like say we have enough testing right now in the United States, you've, you've already got the story that we do have enough testing because that lie has been told. And so there's these, these cognitive um, pitfalls that, that can be manipulated um, uh, you know, by, by people, by putting untruths into the, to the ecosystem. That makes sense. Eve, how do you bridge the divide? You, you've brought communities together that are deeply fractured along particular lines, whether it's gun control or whatever it might be. Yeah. What, what is it that you, how do you frame it? How do you set it up? What are you trying to yeah. achieve and what are you trying to avoid? We're trying to um, do a whole bunch of things. We're trying to um, invite people to, to do something that we believe most of us can do and want to do when we're given a chance to, which is to have a conversation. <laughs> um, and you know, one of the things I think about a lot is that most of us, most of the time in most areas of our lives are able to talk to the people who we live and work with. And we also, we know, for example, that yelling at someone, whether it's in your workplace or your, your teacher or in your family, yelling at someone, insulting someone, demeaning someone um, doesn't get them to do what you want and doesn't get them to believe as you believe, right? And so what we do is we, we ask people to come into conversation and we always ask them with, a, with language that's something like, are you open to or are you interested in a respectful fact-based conversation about issue X? And a certain percent of the people will say, no, actually, I don't want to talk to them. I can't talk to them. I'm too angry. Um, but a lot of people will say, I'm willing to try. I'm curious. I'm curious because my dad believes so differently than I do. I'm curious because my sister does. And then we give people um, an opportunity to remember um, kind of our shared humanity. And we invite them to be curious. So we, we ask a series of questions. Um, what do you think this, the people on the other side think about you? What do you think about them? What do you want to know about them? And what do you want them to know about you? And what we're doing is trying to sort of recognize on all sides, our top level dismissiveness, negativity, um, sort of reflex towards name calling. And you see this across the political spectrum. You know, I live in the San Francisco Bay Area, which is very left. And you see the, the language that is used about people on the right constantly. And it's, it's demeaning, right? And, and you obviously see this, this is the same on the other side. So we, we invite people to come into a structured journalism conversation. We typically run these on Facebook, although we've run um, projects in a whole lot of different formats with some in person. Um, we're messing around with messenger chats right now. We, we're doing some stuff on Zoom. But, but the idea is to give people, a, a, to invite people to slow down, to self-reflect, to think about what they to think about how they're talking to other people and to work at doing it differently. So we talk a lot about, for example, asking genuine questions, not I got you questions. We talk a lot about really inviting people to listen. Like if I, if you're telling me something and I'm already planning my response to you, like how I'm going to find the hole in your argument, that's a different kind of listening that we ask people to do. We ask people to say, what, are, what, what is, what, what could I, what is genuine about this person's belief? You know, how did they come to their beliefs on abortion? How did they come to their beliefs about this president? How do they come to their beliefs about healthcare? And so really be real. Um, we ask people to be humble too, you know, and to, to understand that they don't know everything, that they don't know everything about everyone else's life experiences and ideas. And we also ask people to build actual relationships. And, and, and this is key because again, we, 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 we don't, we are relational. We are 
we are beings that take our cues from others and we we create groups. And so I would say at core, what we're doing is we're taking two sets of kind of in-group communities and asking them to make their own community and asking them to 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 listen and connect and engage. And then we we, we report into these conversations. So if people are talking about, uh, you know, Obamacare, we, we report with information into it. And what we found is that by sort of showing up as people, not abstract journalists, not higher authorities, um, but as fallible, genuine, concerned people, um, and by inviting people to show up that same way, that we begin to get a different kind of dialogue and a different kind of connection. Um, it's not easy, right? We We are deep in our you know, in our views and deep in our hostilities and people come from, you know, it's, you watch people come from communities where everybody around them shares their views. And then that you ask them to come into a conversation where they really are talking maybe for the first time really openly to someone who feels differently. And it's, it's an interesting and challenging, but it's, it's um, rewarding because, because they're, um, the same values. You know, we all want our kids to be healthy and happy. We all want our parents to be healthy and happy. We all want to have decent lives for ourselves. And if you can get to that core recognition and and start assuming the best of people, then you can have a different kind of, of dialogue. I was trying to take notes as you were speaking. Your kind of your rules, your rules of good conversation: sincerity, curiosity, relationship, relational building. What what are the what are the other things? Do you have a list? Um, I do. Well, I have. Uh, I have. I can actually send it to you, and you could attach this. You could. You could share it. But we. Yeah. Well, listen. Slow down. Be curious. Be kind. Be humble. Build relationships. Take the high road. That's that's my favorite. People are always like, but they did this, and so I said this, and then I, I, I think back to my years parenting little kids, and it's like, well, that's that's the whole thing. Is your you're responsible for your own behavior. And then our last is have fun. And we actually think about this quite intentionally because, you know, you cannot, and you know this from your work, you cannot discuss difficult policy issues all day, every day. And 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 so we very um, intentionally put in conversation topics into our groups that are not at all about the issue at hand, because maybe they're about cooking or maybe about their, what you're doing this weekend, or maybe they're about uh, parenting challenges, or maybe they're about what book you just read is a way to to remind us in a different way that we're all people, right? I love the thing that you said, which is that, um, and it talks back to precisely what you started with, which is building communities, that what local journalism did was to build communities. But you've just said, we're taking two different sets of in-groups and trying to get them to form their own in-group amongst themselves. So you're building, again, this sense that everybody's part of the same project. They've just come at it from different perspectives. There are underlying, underlying shared values there. That seems that seems very beautiful and super difficult to do. I, I have, I suppose, a question for you on the flip side. If there's a science to conversation and you've just given us some of your rules, um, is there a what's the psychology of tribalizing? What's the psychology of the screamy disagreements um, that we see across all our media, but especially across our social media, et cetera? What what happens there? Why do we why do we end up tribalizing? Why are we so um, uh, so allergic to opinions which clash with our own. Yeah, and I'm I am not a psychologist, but I read them, um, and I'm not a sociologist either. But and I will. There's a a great article um, that came out in the New Yorker probably three years ago now by Elizabeth Colbert, which is called "Why Facts Don't Change Minds." Um, and I know I read it. It's heartbreaking. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, right. So it's just this. So I don't. I'm. I. I don't completely understand it because. Because, well, let me just take one piece and then I'll try to get to the bigger pieces. Is one of the things that we have learned in our work, um, and that is reaffirmed over and over again, is that it feels better for people when that when they are not in states of anger and adversariality, right? Like we, so I'm sort of, I think I'm dodging your question a little bit, but it's what we know is that when people can come together and talk to their uncle and talk to people in our groups and talk to their mother who they, who they haven't been able to, it feels better. Like this state of heightened disharmony and nastiness is bad for us. It's bad for us physiologically. It's bad for us emotionally. It's, it's bad. And so that said, I don't, so, so that is true. And then we are, you know, we are, we are, we are community animals. We are social beings and there's, and we survived by being in sync and by working in cooperation. And, and you know this from your own experience and I'm sure your listeners do. When you take a view that is different than, you know, say you're in a meeting with eight people and you are in holding a different position that is that is hard and it's not just hard intellectually it's not just hard because of the content of your ideas it's be hard because of all of those relationships and where you sit in them and and who holds control and what it means for the next time there's a decision or you know and so being able to communicate and have ideas and remain in connection is is a really artful skill and so we we you know and we define ourselves in opposition for for a whole lot of reasons and and so i think sort of the key is is broadening that spoke of in, that um circle of inclusion right um and and we're struggling this and you know so you see one of the responses to the covid pandemic is like can we expand our our sense of inclusiveness to the whole world right to people in ecuador who are suffering from covid to people you know, in urban areas in the United States who are suffering. Like that, I think, is the key to the way out. Um, I don't know if that answered your question, but I, mean, I don't I mean, so why we, do we do it? We're, we're, we're tribal by nature. We, we form groups, we keep groups, and we resist outside by our very biology. Yeah, makes sense. Um, and your your escape route, which sounds like empathy, which sounds like sort of imagining the lives imagining the sincerity of others lives um seems like a very beautiful um antidote you've spent so much time talking to people with very 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 different opinions across all sorts of different issues gut i'm not i know you're not a psychologist i know you're not a sociologist do you where do you think opinions come from are they ingrained do you think they're genetic are they is the cultural bit more important than the um than the rational bit is the is the um is the generational piece more important than the gender? I mean, what do you, what, where, where, if I were to ask you, where do opinions come from? What would you say? I think that for most people, they come from exterior forces. <laughs> um, I was, what was I reading? Something about, um, like, if you, oh, there's a, a woman who made a, a documentary about her father becoming, going from sort of being a, a, a Democrat, a sort of a default Democrat in the United States, to being a hard right, um, speaking really uglyly about immigrants, about women, um, after spending all this time watching Fox News, and 
what some people have found is just by removing people from those those communities you 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 it it lessens the force of those so like um we are we are products of our social circumstances it's we are products of what we hear and see around us we are you watch the social norms shifting in communities and it and it happens in a in a you know it happens to the group it doesn't opinion doesn't shift very few people hold and keep opinions that are out of sync with the people that are around them, um, you know, that are largely out of sync with the people that are around them. So where do opinions come from? We're far less, less rational than we think. You know, I've been thinking about this in terms of COVID again. I'm, you know, it's like, I believe, I believe the epidemiologists I'm reading, right? I believe the public health experts, but there is a leap of faith there, right? I, I don't know I am not a scientist. I have not studied how viruses replicate. I have not studied, you know, I have not seen with my eyes how this disease plays out in human bodies, but I'm taking on, you know, with what I consider to be skeptical faith, what I'm hearing, and I'm respecting the what I see as the wisdom of those experts. But it is an act of faith. It is an act of, it's a byproduct of how I was raised and, and my allegiance to um, and respect for science as we know it. And so that helps me think about the person who doesn't carry that background, who can, who is being asked to stay in their home, um, forego their paycheck, wear a mask, um, not travel to see their mother or their grandchildren on, on faith. So, uh, I mean, so I have a sitting in the UK, um, have seen something very peculiar, and I don't know. I, you maybe you can pause it for me. Um, in the UK, there is a the battle of the epidemiologists. We have one group that has actually determined government policy, which comes out of Imperial, which says lockdown. Um, we're going to go. We're, we're going to have five hundred and ten thousand deaths if we don't. And then another group, broadly ignored, coming coming out of Oxford, um, which said half the population is almost almost certainly already. Um, infected and therefore immune and the death rate is considerably lower what's been fascinating here is that lots of people who trust epidemiologists are on opposite sides of the yeah. argument about whether we lock down or not and the peculiar sort of um the 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 tale to this is that i think that there is a mappability between those people between the people who are pro-lockdown based on science and anti-lockdown based on science I think there's a you can map them onto their positions on Brexit, which is should be entirely <laughs> irrelevant. So it makes me wonder whether there is actually a psychological uh, something else, something else at play. And who knows? Well, Question. Big, sorry, go on. Yeah, that's really no. That's super interesting, and it's and then and then you're thinking about like the economic sort of, uh, you know, what other what other forces are at play are on the on on those those scientists, right? Like. What else are they considering? What, anyway, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so, so yeah, these opinion opinion groupings are more complex than purely rational or irrational, left or right. It, oh, it's yeah. it's interesting. So my, I suppose my last question for you is: Can can you build this kind of this sort of miraculous, magical empathy where you um, you really are able to have people from 
diff entrenched different positions, talk to each other and build their new community. You're doing it on, you've done it in person, you've done it on in small, discrete Facebook groups. Can you yeah. do it at scale? Can you do it? Can you do it online? Can you fix the comment section of, the, of YouTube? <laughs> Um, so this is a question that everyone always asks me, Terry. And sometimes I say this, sometimes I say, um, you can't scale, you know, you don't scale your relationships, right? You, you don't scale your marriage, hopefully, or at least, you know, you don't scale your parenting. I mean, you get help, but you don't scale it. Um, you don't scale your work relationships. I mean, you do, but the really good ones are tight and are based on real connection. Um, so that's what one answer, you know, I do, and what I mean by that is it's, it's very difficult look at one level I think of what we're doing is really inviting people to know themselves better and to know and to and to repattern themselves to make more productive um, statements so instead of reading something and dismissing it out of hand or or you know bashing it down with with some ugly word to like pause self-reflect and consider it and so those are all really sort of those are soft, difficult skills to invite people to know themselves differently and know the people around them. That said, I think that the real sort of key to scale is what you identified earlier, which is is um, demanding of ourselves and others to sit in a, a, a deep empathy. And so, um, and I think that is um, that is scalable in the sense of that reminder to be our better or best self, I think can carry us through a lot. Um, so, and I think most of us do this a lot of the time, you know, I'm watching people here line queue to go into grocery stores and wait for two hours to get into the Trader Joe's and struggle to walk on the walking path without getting too close. And there's a tremendous amount of compassion um, and respect for our fellow humans. And I think that, so the, for me, I think that the, when I think about how, how do we write the ship of global discourse, it is, it isn't going to be winning or scoring points on a, a, a you know, on any particular policy or, you know, argument or, or any of that. It's going to be inviting more and more of us to communicate in a way that honors our shared humanity. And, and, and that's, um, that is, and that has been how social movements have been propelled, right. Um, through, across time, it, it is, it is that invitation to a greater good that religions carry that lots of secular movements carry. Um, and I think we can't look away from that right now our, you know our we are in crisis in so many ways globally it's um you know that to me though those are the steps towards the path out um and and i guess i would say something else about scale which is if and how the journalism industry which you see all kinds of innovation um in the nonprofit sector is a you know thinking about membership thinking about state-funded journalism in a new way like in this country I think those are pathways out to um, to finding new and different ways to give people the information, the basic information they they need to live their lives in a way that they can trust. Um, because people show up, because it's 
about them because it's all, all the things that we know that engender trust. So is, uh, can you, fact, yeah, go ahead. Big, yeah. No, no, no. So the one big part fact, make sure that we actually have a common reality that we are all talking about. And two, this greater good that you're describing, this commitment to a greater good, a secular greater good, whatever it might be, um, which just to go back to one of the first things that you said is that sort of democracy depends on us coming together to thrash out our disagreements. That greater good is a commitment to demo- democracy, right? Uh, you know, yeah, I agree. Like we, we, without that, with, if we can't come, we, our job is to come into the room, to be human, to be considerate, to be intellectually honest, to be emotionally, as emotionally honest as we can be, knowing that we are very complex <laughs> creatures. That that's that's where we have to go, and and I think it's a, I think it's a big ask. Not it is a big ask for everyone, and it and I am particularly sensitive to the to the closed mindedness and the the nasty behavior of those on the the left because those that, those are the worlds in which I live in. I mean, um, and I see, you know, we our tendency is always 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 to blame the other side, and I'm putting that in quotation marks, but. We are. We all have a part to play in improving dialogue and improving discourse, and 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 that recognition will help help move us forward. Eve, I'm enormously grateful for the chance to chat these things through with you. This has been fascinating. I've learned a huge amount, um, and um, and I hope I hope what you describe, um, I hope we're able to help what you describe, and I hope what you describe happens. Yeah, I think it's a lot of us doing a lot of work in soul searching. <laughs> and the more of that, the better. <laughs> oh, um, so much to do. Um, thank you for for uh, taking the time to talk to me and um, having me on your show. I really appreciate it. It's great to talk. Eve, again, all our best and thanks so much. That was the Palia podcast from Palia.com, the encyclopedia of opinion.